probably like how many, how many inches is that? Like four inches? Sure. It was there and it was just so like light and transparent, but I was like just shocked that that came on me. Like, where does that happen from? Was it straight? Because your hair is It was 100% straight. Yeah. straight. And just, like, so fine. Like, like, little baby hairs on your face. But it was just, like, four inches long on my back. It might be my hair. No, it was <laughs> attached to me. Oh! Like, it was oh, growing on Oh, me. no. Oh, my God. This oh, is... Can you imagine? You buried the lead. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely oh. not as, like, innocuous as just, like, a random hair on my back. Hilarious. I've been recording this whole time. Good to know. So everybody knows that I'm a hairy monster. Thank you for that. Probably not. I might have to edit the beginning because I think you're a bit far away from Mike. Anyway. <laughs> um, so welcome to today's episode of Pantry Staples. Where we dish on your favorite foods. I'm Emily. And I'm Marika. And I guess we should probably tell you a little bit about what we're doing here and yeah. what this podcast is. <laughs> Realize that we did not give a proper introduction in our Third first two episode episodes. Third episode is great. A good time for that. Um, so what it is, is we are both very interested in food, the history of it, how it's spread across the world, how it's changed over time, uh, what it says about us as people. And we have no reason to be doing this. We're not professionals <laughs> in any way. No, but... Um, we both are interested, yeah, in the history, and we like reading and doing research. So sort it's of. just a guided research for yeah. us. Uh, but that also has the caveat that nothing we say should be taken with any real sincerity. Oh, yes. This is all very much... We've done some research, we've taken some notes, but it's off the top of our head. We are... Not professionals. No. Which probably you may have guessed if you listened to our first two episodes. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so today we are talking about fish sauce. Yes. Our first, again, our first two episodes were a little Western centric. So we decided to switch it up. Yeah. Branch out from, I guess, our comfort zones. Butter is definitely my comfort Butter zone. Butter is exactly. a comfort zone. Yes. Um, I think... Too, though, what's really interesting about when we get into the research on fish sauce is that if you read a lot of the literature, and perhaps this is just because we are white women in Canada Googling <laughs> things, um, a lot of what we come up with is still quite Western-centric. Obviously, that's not to say that that's really what fish sauce is about, but it's interesting how the research gets skewed occasionally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So do you want to jump right into it? Emily, what sure. what even is fish sauce? Start us off with the... So the main thing about fish sauce is that it's very basic. At its core, it is just salted fish that has fermented down into a liquid. Uh, that said, very occasionally, well, not very occasionally, in cheaper productions of it, you are going to have additives, you are going to have sugar being introduced to it, you are also not going to be using fish all the time, we are going to be using other aquatic animals, uh, eels oysters. Uh, so it is a little bit more than just that, but the best quality and the most traditional is just fish layered with salt fermented. Cool. So the first time we are seeing this, which is super interesting, we have both uh, early Asian history of it and the early European history of it. So to start in Asia, in the Zhou dynasty, which is from about uh, 1046 to 249 BCE, which is, I understand, a very long time to cover. <laughs> and that's Zhu Dynasty, that's China. China, yes. Okay. Thank you. Exactly. <laughs> which is the timeline that we are working on and just the facts that the research that we have for it. Uh, during this period, we are seeing the co-fermentation of soybeans and fish to create 
the the condiment that they're using and this is popular until about the Han Dynasty which is about 206 BCE to 220 CE. Um, here we see the separation of the two so now we're getting soy sauce on its own as well as fish sauce being created independently. We also are seeing what is called <laughs> the bean divide or Ooh, the bean fish divide sorry. Bean fish divide. Uh, where eastern Asian countries, so China, Japan, and Korea, are really heavily focused in their diet on soy sauce. That is what is popular there. That's what's being produced. Whereas Southeastern Asian countries are really heavily into fish sauce. Um, so around 100 BCE, fish sauce, not super common in those Eastern countries, but we are actually seeing it reintroduced into Eastern Asia. So again, China, Japan, and Korea okay. around 17th to 18th century CE by uh, traveling salespeople. Uh, and that's, is that the Silk Road? Is that when that is or is that later? That's a little bit later. later. So the okay. Silk Road is, this is the other theory, is that the, we'll get into that later. Yeah, Sorry, I don't want to no. jump here. Oh, just <laughs> I don't know, timelines, dates are so hard. They're so hard. And also, again, we are very Western. We do not know the timelines of China as comfortably as we know them in, you know, Eastern, no, not in Western <laughs> culture yes also we can only read english articles yeah which is a real bummer sorry Uh, um so that's what we're seeing it over there it is very popular there's the co-fermentation and then it's kind of still being used but it does drop in popularity until this reintroduction um european history we are seeing fish sauce first being found in shipwreck from tunisia around like modern day northern africa Carthaginian Empire, if anyone is super about those Carthaginians, uh, as we are not in this I know, pro-Roman podcast. Pro-Roman podcast. podcast. Um, Anyways, so we see in this shipwreck amphorae filled with fish sauce that originated from Spain and Morocco. This is around 5th century BCE. Uh, We also have a lot of ancient Greek authors that mention it. Uh, Aristophanes, Sophocles, and Aeschylus. I can never say their names. Uh, Really, there's... I can't say much here. Uh, Anyways, in Rome, that's when it gets really interesting because we have this massive production. It is behind olive oil and wine as the third most produced thing in the Roman Empire. That's not to say that throughout the entire history of the Roman Empire and across every facet of it, that it is the third most, but we are seeing quite a popularity there. Lots of fish sauce. Lots of fish sauce. Bitches love their fish. (laughs) Um, And also, again, why would we be so into this? Because it's a way of preserving fish and stretching it further. And you use all this salt that you have around to make that work. And it's good for people. Keeps the keeps the poor tummies filled. Um, Wait, so they're just drinking fish sauce? Like, no, they're obviously using it as a condiment. (laughs) They're using it in recipes. Um, But that's not to say that it can't. Because who was it? I think it was. Oh, who was it? One of the historians said it was so good that you could drink it if you wanted to. Maybe I will find that in my notes. That's hilarious because I just jumping way down to the very Mm -hmm. end of my section of this. There's a Bon Appetit article that ranks the fish sauces because of course, of course. And of course I read that. And they, the one that they chose, which will be revealed at the end of this podcast, they said, we don't recommend drinking it. But you could, because it's that good. Like, something <laughs> But that's the thing, is when it is being produced in this really high level, it is quality enough that you could enjoy drinking it. I actually enjoyed it on my popcorn last night. I did not execute it perfectly. Some of my popcorn got a little too soggy. But fish sauce on popcorn. 
interesting enough to try salt 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 and umami which is again i think mm-hmm. the thing that we haven't even mentioned yet but it's so integral to the popularity of this is that it's that delicious rich umami flavor that everybody was so interested in so in rome it was called garum and it's hugely popular Pliny calls it blended to the color of old honey wine uh so that is sometimes made from fish blood as well it's not necessarily just like fillets of fish um or just very tiny ones being laid out to salt. So next after garum, you have uh, ligurum, which is a sediment of garum. It's less elite. Uh, It's a bit of a way to stretch the salt supplies, which, you know, makes sense. Bitches still wanted their fish sauce, but they couldn't afford it. Uh, We have muria, which is a brine that is filtered out after salting the fish. So again, even less concentrated, less expensive, just kind of salty, fishy water, I guess. How is that spelled? Uh, It is spelled... M-U-R-I-A. Oh, okay. I was thinking it was going to be almost like myrrh, but I guess if this oh. is a lower quality, it's just me attempting to... No, but I like the connection that you got there. My poor etymology. All right, please continue. <laughs> if I was a wise man, I would bring you fish sauce, though. <laughs> that would be my production. Or, yeah. yeah. Why not? Probably more useful than myrrh. What does anyone actually use myrrh for? I always forget what myrrh is. I have no idea. Frankincense and gold, I know. I actually don't know what frankincense is either. It's a... Is it like, like an essential like a oil? Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. oil. I think, I think myrrh would be like that too then, right? I could look it up, but I don't feel like nah. it. Nah. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, so lastly, we have alec, which is more of a paste. It's using leftover sediment uh, from the fish. It's also going to contain like ground up bones and anything that wasn't um, fermented from, like fermented down from it, Ew. which is disgusting, but hey, why not? So then <laughs> we have something called hemation, which is the highest quality garum. And it's traditionally made of the blood and guts of tuny fish. Not tuna, T-U-N-N-Y, which is just local to kind of Italy, I suppose. (laughs) Which is, again, the other point to make is that all of the fish that are being used predominantly in this is what's ever around. It's, you know, the nicest thing you can find. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, So we are seeing, again, that this is something that is being used throughout all these different classes and to varying degrees of, like, quality. Seneca says, it is a poisonous fish which burns up the stomach with its putrefaction. So there are some people who did not like it. I think Seneca seems like a cunt, but that's fine. <laughs> you can't say it. I think Seneca seems like a really mean dude. Oh, no. Um, we'll edit that out. <laughs> Anyways, it's clearly very popular, though. Apicus, Apicus, whatever, Ooh. he is the most predominant basically cookbook from ancient Roman history. And he has 350 recipes that included in there. Uh, It's used in all manner of ways. And we are also seeing a lot of the physical remains of factories. When they're excavated, we see them all across the empire. We're seeing them in Spain, Morocco. We're seeing them in Northern Africa. We're even seeing them in Britain and the Netherlands. So this isn't just something that's really Mediterranean based because again, we could get fish in these areas. So mm-hmm. we're going to have them. Uh, the largest one is in Morocco and it produced over a million liters. What? Which is crazy. That's crazy. It's 10 times more than the most uh, productive olive oil fa- uh, factory as well. Wow. Which, so this is, again, like, did I say this? It's the third greatest, like, yeah, export. Yeah, you did. And it's massive. Like, such a huge industry. So would they be exporting from those factories? Or is that totally. more for, like, local use? Again, depending on the factory. But there's definitely exportation. Like I said. Like a million. Million. That's way too much for any town. Unless there's just, like, one town that's just guzzling it back. Loves it. Yeah. Just absolutely crazy about it. Anyways. 
Um, we are also seeing during Augustus's time that the highest quality garum was coming from towns called Cartagena and Cadiz in Spain, which oh, was Cadiz. 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 Yes. It's very nice. It's nice there. <laughs> Did you go on your trip with Blake there? Yeah. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah. Aww. It's like the very, like, it's a southern tip. That would make sense because part of the water. sherry triangle. Uh, mm-hmm. Sherry, sherry, sherry. Sherry and fish sauce. Actually, that would go very well together. See, like the umami and then the sort of Ooh, that sounds sweetness really good. dryness of sherry. Should we get? Okay, no, you can't have fish sauce. I Again, can't. fish sauce is a vegetarian and Marika unfortunately is. <laughs> it's a real pain in my ass. Anyways, so this was called this really fancy one from Spain during Augustus's reign, which I suppose I should say is around like, God, I can't remember the dates, but it's like turn of the century, like 14 CE. Wasn't that when he took over? I don't know. <laughs> Babylon would fully kill me. She was my professor. I am a classical studies major from eons ago. Probably more than you needed to know. Anyways, this is called Garum Sociorum, and it cost uh, approximately for 12 pints of this, the same as 2,000 loaves of bread. <laughs> These bitches loved it. Um, so what we're seeing from this early Asian and early European history is that both have a remarkably similar taste. We've actually had scientists go and like scrape the stuff off of the amphorae. So someone's eating like thousands, thousands Apparently. of Apparently. Oh my goodness. Which I love. I would easily do that. Yeah, that's a fun job, I guess. <laughs> I, yeah, who, where do I have to apply to just eat the weird historical shit? Just like food tester for for science. science. That's me. I'm happy to do it. Um, anyways, so both have a remarkably similar taste, which in a lot of the like literature that I read, people are often commenting saying, oh, it was created in like the Roman Empire or it was created by the Greeks or, you know, the Carthaginians, the, these kinds of people, and then moved over to Asia through the Silk Road, which seems like an insane theory to me personally. It mm. seems like a very Western-centric approach to yeah. looking at this. And I think that we do have enough to suggest that it was being independently created in both places. Mark Kurlansky, in his book, uh, Salt, A World History, does say that they were independently developed. He's done quite a bit of research on that. It makes so much sense. It makes sense. so much it more sense. It doesn't make sense that it's only imports. Like everywhere, both places have yeah. fish, both both, bleh, both, both <laughs> places have salt. And then going back to the soy sauce, like the origins of that, they're very silly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And it just seems quite like, meh, 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 only we can only do we this. Can, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. To Ugh. kind of deny that agency and creativity. Now, a little bit later into the history, because again, what we're looking at here is still very much like up to like 600 CE. Um, but even later than that, 10th century CE, we have... Um, a gentleman from Byzantium, Leoprint of Cremona, who <laughs> does discuss it and says, oh my god, it's so popular. Do you guys remember when we had this during the Roman Empire? So good. Still so good. Everybody's obsessed with it. Except for the fact that not many other people are referencing it, so we have to take that with a grain of salt. Uh, and umami. <laughs> and umami. Thank you. Um, now... Why is there no real fish sauce in the Middle Ages? One, because everyone's a nightmare. The Middle Middle Ages were just a nightmare. They were just a A nightmare. nightmare. Um, No, after the fall of the Roman Empire, salt got way more expensive because everything got way more expensive. If you don't have, like, you know, settled towns and proper trade routes, shit's going to be difficult. Uh, 
But so we don't have as much salt on hand and you do need quite a bit of salt to properly create this. Uh-huh. I think it's, I don't know, I haven't salted fish myself, <laughs> but I would imagine that it's more salt to make uh, fish sauce than it is to just salt the fish to preserve it. So we're seeing a lot of actually salted fish, but it doesn't go to that fermentation step, which I think also might be a time constraint yeah, issue say, is or just... like a space issue. Because if you don't have, like obviously people are living on farms, but if you're like in these shitty little like gross towns, and everybody's like crammed in next to each other just flinging poop out a window i don't think you're focusing on like you don't have a room dedicated to just slowly turn fish into liquid yeah and everything smells disgusting there anyway so i don't really think they're gonna like want to aggravate that situation a bit (laughs) um anyways so then we want to talk about modern production which is really interesting as well so we are seeing um it's developed into quite a craft i would say Mm. so a lot of the similar kind of techniques that we're seeing with wine production well not a lot of them but occasionally uh, are being used here as well so we have actually first like press fish sauce Mm. which in wine when you have the first press that's the best quality wine uh when you have it in fish sauce it's the best quality fish sauce um you also have your second press which is really interesting that they're doing that they're also when the liquid starts to come out of the fermentation or out of the the tanks that they're fermenting it in yeah which when I say tanks, that's a wine thing. It's more often like great wooden kind of barrels that they're using. They use wood, not like uh, pottery, ceramic. There's definitely ceramic yeah. used as well, but between the two of them, I think that that's the main. Mm, okay. Um, anyways, so that liquid that's coming out is actually being put back on top and just like uh, to push everything down and keep it going. Oh, yeah. Which we're, we see that in wine as well. Like all that juice kind of gets popped in and like they push the top down all that yeah again a very bad example of how much i know about wine but there we go um but i think it's cool because it's such yeah like you were saying a refined process exactly taken the centuries to figure out how to make this exactly it's delicious like an art form at this point so the ratios i think are important also to discuss so we see examples of ratios of uh the salt or sorry fish to salt being five to one or anywhere between that and two to one. So varies completely depending on the f- five of salt or five of fish. Five of fish. I oh. believe that's what I got from my reading. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So it's not even actually that much salt, which we were talking about earlier. I think that's still a fuck ton of salt though. I guess. I'm just like imagining like them sprinkling. No, it's like they're heaping it on. Yeah. Maybe it is the other way around and I just misread everything. Anywho, but lots then of be- fish and salt. I don't know. No, I, that makes sense. It does, because right. you want it to be more fishy. Exactly. Like, if it's just salt, then that's... It's just salt. Gross. Should we learn how to make fish sauce? Okay, that's a whole separate thing. <laughs> Anyways, um, we're also seeing that the time that this has to ferment for, varying vastly. And again, this is completely correlating to the quality that we're seeing produced. It can be anywhere from three months to two years uh, uh-huh. before it comes out. Now, modern day, we are seeing fish sauce used... Again, like 95% of the time in Southeastern Asian cuisine, that's where it's coming from. That's where it's popularized. But that's not to say that the Italians have completely forgotten it. We have something called colatura di alici. I said that so badly. Um, Which is a fish sauce still made in factories in a village of Cetera in Italy, which is really cool. So they're still like remembering that tradition. That's cool. That's going to be Southern Italy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so then the most interesting thing I think about this fish sauce business in modern times is that it is actually considered a protected designation of origin, uh, in one island in Vietnam called Phu Quoi. Phu Quoi? Did I say that right? 
Fuquak? Uh, Fuquak? Oh no. Anyways, sorry. Sorry to them, but they have great fish sauce that's actually been like globally recognized as being like the best. The best. And also, it's much like with champagne, like that's the homeland of it then, kind right. of. Which is really interesting. Now, a lot of the really high end fish sauces that we're seeing are being produced in Vietnam. That's not to say that they are being produced elsewhere in Southeastern Asian countries. Uh, Thailand makes an absolute ton of it, but we do see quite a difference in quality. Mm. The fish sauce that's coming out of Vietnam is usually just going to be the fish and the salt. Whereas out of Thailand, it is often stretched with other things, uh, sugar, oftentimes some additives, that kind of thing. As well, we are seeing other animals or other sea life being used, like I said, which is so interesting as to why we have this complete difference of it mm-hmm. and i don't want to be so bold as to assume it's the vietnam war's fault but i will it's always suggest. it's always the vietnamese american war because exactly. i refuse to call it just the vietnamese war thank you okay. because or vietnam war because in vietnam they call it the american war which is the best thing ever that I is mean, of course it makes sense of but course. it's just like yeah okay so the in during the american war <laughs> st- there was obviously tensions between the two and then until or maybe around 1975, there actually was a kibosh on importing products from Vietnam. So we're seeing, and to Europe as well. So we're seeing a much smaller market for Vietnamese fish sauce, which I think means that they don't have to kind of pander to the Americanization of this sort of Mm. stuff. They don't need to worry about cutting it and making it stretch farther. Whereas in Thailand, they must have picked up on this open market and just started like exporting, exporting, exporting. (laughs) I'm going to get into this. So that is my thoughts on why there's this real distinction between like this really high end fish sauce that we're seeing produced in Vietnam versus a very like, I don't want to say table wine version, but like (laughs) a very table wine version of the fish sauce in other areas. Um, Would you like to take over? Yes. Okay. So uh, I'm going to actually jump off what you were saying there. And from my research, which... I should also do a caveat has very little specifically to do with fish sauce because, but I think that's yes. what we're looking to explore though, yes. is that it's, it's not always just specifically about like the actual history of the dish. It's about what this food it's ingredient dish can tell us. Exactly. And kind of like, it's a jumping off point to explore other aspects of food and culture. Um, so yeah, so fish sauce, I'm looking at it more in a modern sense, specifically focusing on Vietnam and Thailand, and then the ways that fish sauce and the food of those cultures and the identity of the people from those countries changed uh, in contact with Western culture, specifically the United States. Big change. Big, lots of, so much. So yeah, so it's, Fish sauce is extremely important to Southeast Asian cuisine uh, because it is fundamental to the specific balance of flavors in their food, specifically uh, salty, sour, sweet, and then also spiciness. Umami! Yes, umami. So fish sauce is key because it actually is almost a combination of the salty, sour, and the sweet. Exactly. But then if we're thinking specifically in terms of Vietnamese versus Thai cuisine, Mm -hmm. Thai also is very heavy with the spice is really important, which I'll talk about later. Maybe that's why it's sweeter. Which is what I'm going to say. So I think actually part of the reason 
not that the cultural influence. And I think that that is very important. And that's Mm. also going to be a big part of my conversation here. But I think a lot of the reasons that the Thai varieties of fish sauce are not as like delicate, Mm -hmm. I guess, which I don't, that word is really loaded, but yeah, is Vietnamese cuisine is a lot more, yeah, like delicate. Like it's focused more on herbs Mm. and sort of the lighter flavors and just that sort of sweet, salty, sour interplay. There's not a lot of spice. Whereas Mm. in Thai cuisine, yeah, it's like a lot more like punchy. Punchy is, I think, a great word for that. And again, Mm. like I think most people know, but if you have something that's really, really spicy, you want something really sweet to kind of counteract that. Mm -hmm. So that makes total sense. Yeah. So that's... I'll stop shitting on the ties. Sorry, guys. (laughs) No hate. No hate. Um, Okay. So yes. So as I was saying, kind of going to be more of a thematic approach. Uh, So sort of my key themes are going to be food and national slash ethnic identity. Mm -hmm. So basically how the specific cuisines of these countries helped tie the... Oh, <laughs> oh that was good. Uh, it, <laughs> Sorry. It was a link home for uh, the Southeast Asian diaspora. Uh, and then that also kind of has a dark side when you're so closely tied to your cuisine. Um, it's very easy for those outside your nationality to kind of take the food as a stand-in for yeah. all of the complexities and contradictions of a culture and a people. So it's if you're only ever thinking, it's like, oh yeah, like Thai people are Thai food, which yeah. uh, dark. Yes. And this is especially prescient when uh, the sites where the food are served are codified as exotic in the terms of the decor and the clothing and the dancing and all that kind of stuff, which yes. Uh, So then the other part that I'm going to get into here is the blending of the quote unquote exotic with the familiar in order to appeal to a Western palate. Mm -hmm. Talking about fusion. Fusion. And then the contrast. So again, the dark side of that, which I mean, you could almost think that it is a dark side, but I think there's something something nice about fusion when it's executed by people who have kind of the cultural authority to do so yes and i think specifically the problem with fusion in a lot of the context that i'm looking at is when people who decide to sort of adopt fusion as their main like restaurant style style yeah uh they're accused of being inauthentic Uh, which that's a whole can of worms right there i'm gonna i'm gonna like peek at that can of worms a little bit okay so let's start with the Thai. Mm-hmm. And specifically, I'm just going to jump right into the Thai diaspora in mm-hmm. the United States, which is a lot that I'm... It's, there's a lot of history. And I really don't know like anything <laughs> about it, which is I don't know that I know a lot about it. Um, basically, the Thai take a lot of pride in being kind of the only Southeast Asian country that was never colonized. Oh... I didn't even think about that. Yes. And that's something that I've read a lot of, like, in a lot of my articles. But then I, I was also constantly being like, but they kind of were. It, hmm. Yes. So if we think of the post-World War II, mm-hmm. we're starting to get into the Cold War, which Ooh. is where we get into the whole Vietnam kettle of fish. Oh. sauce. <laughs> get out. Sorry. <laughs> um, 
so that's one side of it. So the United States, we are just right off of World War II. The Americans are starting out as the quote unquote leaders of the free world. And it becomes a time of U.S. imperialist, but not imperialist expansion. So it's basically where they're going into all of these different countries and in a pretend and in a supposed effort to stomp out communist influence, they are putting in American values and capitalist values too. You really can't go and colonize anything. You can't go and be an imperialist in a traditional sense because that shit will get you shot. Yes. So it becomes a sort of cultural imperialism. And I think to some extent you could say that it was born out of like the intentions are good. It's like road to hell paved with good intentions. Totally. And perhaps not, like, there are definitely other people who are like, like we should expand. It's some shady intentions as well. But the idea is, oh, like, here's a community, a nation, a country, culture that we see as struggling, either because of war or because of the removal of these colonial powers post-World War II. Mm -hmm. And it's, oh, like, let's go help them and we'll bring in, like, aid Mm -hmm. and teach them how to be a good have a good government. And be and, a good Christian. Uh, yeah. I, I go with mm, yeah. Okay, step away. There's a lot. It's, again, catalyst <laughs> So there's a lot there. But I'm explaining poorly. But anyway, so unlike uh, most Southeast Asian immigrants to the U.S. in the mid-20th century, Thais who immigrated uh, from the 50s to the 70s were not refugees. Mm. So that they're kind of coming in with a really different, a totally different approach, totally different mindset. And so they're moving there specifically because of really uh, increased relationships governmentally. <laughs> what am I saying? Okay. Yeah. Governmentally. Well, is governmental the- relate like the, re- <sighs> that's a safer kind of relationship, I suppose, in some ways. Yes. No, so there's big ties. Basically oh. the U S is all up into Thailand. They're basically creating the Thai tourist industry. They're just licking at them. Kind of turning it into a playground for imperial, non-imperial tourism, which... Whole other can of worms. It's a lot. So anyway, lots of Thais coming to the United States. In the 70s, LA had the largest Thai population outside of Thailand. Really? Yeah. That makes sense, I suppose. Actually, LA... I mean, the West Coast is always... The coast is very Asian in general. Yes. So we'll talk later... Orange County was actually the largest population of Vietnamese. So it's all centered in California, lots of Southeast Asian diaspora. So in the early days, like the 50s, 60s, there were no Thai or even Southeast Asian grocery stores. Mm -hmm. So these new Thai immigrants had to recreate the flavors of their dishes of home using ingredients available in American grocery stores. So when it comes to fish sauce, we see what's available, anchovy paste or Worcestershire sauce, which is technically a fish sauce. And we didn't even talk about yeah, that. Yeah, I purposefully I, didn't I want to totally talk about it. I steered away from it because, well, I I do love some Worcestershire sauce. That is my, my jam. Anytime I make a Caesar salad, I'm all up in that. Yeah. But I felt like it was dissimilar enough. Yeah. And it's like a different taste profile. Like that's very much like the issue that you're discussing here. It it is different from it. Mm -hmm. Um, And also I don't have to, so there. (laughs) 
So yes. So I should say that there were Chinese grocery stores at this time that the Mm -hmm. Thai immigrants could shop at, like they're in Chinatown, obviously. But so even though, so while they could find rice, soy sauce, cooking utensils there, fish sauce was noticeably lacking because the Chinese don't really use fish sauce. We get back to our, uh, back to the great bean fish divide. divide. (laughs) Yes. So it's, it's tough. Like they, they just don't have the resources. So because they can't get these important flavors to create the very specific flavor profile of Thai cuisine, a lot of these immigrants resorted to smuggling in the <laughs> products. So it's like they've got, you know, like galangal, <laughs> little like secret, like makrut, which is the lime, like kef- kefir lime yeah. leaves, like little sneaky seeds. I'm just picturing a whole bunch of fish sauce up the butt. So <laughs> not at all what happened, I'm sure. Very, very enjoying uncomfortable. That visual. Yeah, but it's sad that people literally had to break the law in order to enjoy, like, a food that reminds them of home. And, like, that's such a human impulse, and I think that's, like, really what's so central to this, is that we, as people, like, the flavors that we have in our homes are so, so, so important to us that we would actually commit crimes for that. I guess, yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, and why not? And it's also, it's so sad that, you would have to do that? Yeah. Which, kind of heartbreaking. Especially if you are in a country that is really, like, probably very inhospitable at that point. Like, you are suffering quite a bit. Yeah. To be there. Totally. So, I think I mentioned maybe a little bit before, but the American government, the customs agents at this time, were, like, super racially biased against the importation of Southeast Asian foodstuffs. Because... Mm-hmm. Of course. Bugs and drugs. Bugs and drugs. And it's, I'm actually shocked to know that the drugs were such a big issue, like, in, like, the 60s and stuff. I mean, I guess it makes sense. Like, opium and shit, but... I think this is the, like, kind of the thing that my mom always said. She's like, ugh, every generation always thinks that they invented sex and drugs. And it's like, no, they were, they were smuggling stuff back then, too. Sure, but I guess I didn't know that, like, even in the 60s, like, Thailand was, like, I don't know. I've, there's a lot of stereotypes about yeah. Thailand currently. Totally. That I... It's interesting. Yeah. So yes, drugs, bugs. The customs agents were operating under the dubious supposition that American-made food products were modern, safe, disease-free, <laughs> while foreign foods, in total square scare quotes, were contaminated or dangerous. Which is wild. Wild. Okay, but finally, 1972, we see the first Thai grocery store, the Bangkok Market. Woo! It's opened in Los Angeles. The owner worked in conjunction with farmers and importers to be able to be the first to sell Southeast Asian food products in the States. What, like, how proud would you be if that was you? Just being like, yep, I did it. I brought it all here. Just, like, so cool. I also, I saw that, like, it actually closed recently. Is it, like... COVID related. No! I don't know. I feel like I have No, it closed in like 2019 in like November. Oh. And I think the article just was like, they just didn't want to do it anymore. Yeah. Like I think the original owner had like passed away and so the son was running it and he's got like a whole bunch of other things. Like they're fine. But. What are his other things? Does he have like restaurants or? I think so. Yeah. And there was always, there was always actually like restaurants were associated with the Bangkok market they were, yeah, they had their own, like, importing company because they basically had to. Huh. 
And then like, yeah, they had also in the article that I was reading about this, they were in, like working with a lot of farmers in Mexico. So it's, oh. we're seeing all of these, like the Southeast Asian produce and products being like brought over or like up through Mexico into the- Were they like planted and farmed in Mexico? Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, and the Mexican farmers were like, I don't know, like, we're not going to eat, like, what are these weird, like, why do you need durian? <laughs> I don't know if they're growing durian Did in I Mexico. tell you about the time when a, a woman, like, gave Julia, my friend, a sample of durian, and she's like, you won't like it. And <laughs> us being like, no, we'll be, we'll love it. We're so cultured. How no. And we're like, no, we don't like it. No. This is very bad for us. It's, yeah. So, sorry to that lady for not believing you. And sorry to my mouth for doing that. I did not enjoy. <laughs> no, it's not good. No. Uh, so yes, so 72, we've got this first Thai grocery store. Very exciting. And it was just in time because Thai restaurants are about to like pop off. Pop, 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 pop. <laughs> um, I don't know if we, I guess we talked a little bit about the like fish sauce being important to the Southeast Asian sort of mm-hmm. food profile earlier, specifically kind of more in relation to the Vietnamese style but so specifically the flavor profile of thai cuisine is called yum (laughs) so i love it i love it so it and it incorporates the sour salty sweet of sort of more vietnamese style but it also has creaminess and spiciness and creamy is the yum it's all yum the whole the the whole bundle is the yum the package so in order that makes sense because it's yum yeah and you need all of these what is it five (laughs) sort of flavors to work together in order to create the yum Again, having Thai for dinner tomorrow, and I'm very excited about it. It's still my desert island food. Yeah. We'll repeat that forever. It's It's all I ever want to eat. Yeah. I was Mm. so, so hungry reading these articles. Oh. (laughs) No, it was fine. So the way Thai food is marketed in Thai restaurants in America started to dominate how Americans perceived Thai people and how Thais viewed themselves, Mm -hmm. which I think is super interesting to see that kind of feedback loop. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I guess it makes sense, like, always when you have sort of two cultures, two nationalities mixing in. Like, we're just like any two things ever, really. Mm. Like, we're so informed by others' opinions of ourselves. And, like, if that's on, like, a more intense scale, that makes complete sense. Yeah, but I think it's specifically interesting in this case because the food is such an important factor in it. Mm. So 1975, we're three years after the, the Bangkok market opened up. Uh, restaurants made up one third of all Thai owned businesses in LA. That is fantastic. Yeah. So it's a huge industry. Also just like a shout out to the fact that the U S is the reason that Thailand has a service based tourist reliant economy. Just like going back to. Yeah. Lots, lots coming out there. Empire. But anyway, there was a Thai restaurant boom in LA from the late seventies into the eighties. Most of these restaurants opened in West Los Angeles, which is home to some of the whitest neighborhoods. And I guess also the richest. I love that. Just like coming in, kicking down the doors, setting up shop. We're here. We're going to make you some Thai food. You're going to be obsessed, which we are. They were. I know. It was so smart. Middle-class white people love Thai food. <laughs> they love it. Uh, so American eating habits were changing at this time. More and more people were eating out and dining out became like an event, mm-hmm. like a novel kind of experience. It separated from the blah of everyday life. Themed restaurants were very important oh. at this time. And what like 
give what's an example of a theme restaurant that like oh okay so like themed restaurants i mean actually even like before this like sort of we're talking like 70s 80s here but like you think like 50s and 60s uh like tiki bars like the whole that was kind of more like the whole polynesian which is a whole that's a whole thing so that's bitches love a theme. Bitches, I do not love a theme. I do not love a theme restaurant. Oh, okay. I guess I don't love a themed restaurant, but I love a theme. I love a theme in general, of course. A themed restaurant is, again, I think it's that whole issue of inauthenticity right there. Mm. But also the fact that mm. I went to a rainforest cafe or attempted to go when I was six years old with my parents. And it was terrifying because they had a massive like animatronic snake that was just wiggling around just terrifying the youngins and I cried and we didn't go in and it's not the first or the last time I've cried in a mall. <laughs> so I do not support the theme restaurant. Oh no. Although I, I do fuck with a tiki bar. Oh, I love a tiki bar. I yeah. I think the thing like now with tiki bars, they're a little bit more like self-aware. Yeah. It's like poking fun. Yes. But um, yeah. No, in the uh, 70s and 80s, tire eateries were primed to take advantage of a desire for the exotic. come back to that um and then also they were able to kind of cash in on the health consciousness of the 80s with like tofu and like a vegetable driven cuisine i don't even know it's like i read this like literally (laughs) i suppose if you're used to eating like really like traditionally like white american meals where you have so much meat on your plate so much starch on your plate it makes sense but also, I do not think of Thai food as particularly healthy in my Oh, like opinion. light? Yeah, no, it's very heavy. The creaminess is integral to the young. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, so yes, so these early Thai restaurants in the States racialized their food and the establishments, like, in a lot of ways. So specifically, the first way we see is with, like, the names of the restaurants. They're like the Orient, Ooh, Siamese yeah. Princess, like Lotus. It's... Mm. troubling it's a lot um but then so on the other side they would also sometimes align themselves with the asian food that was more familiar at the time which is chinese although this would later backfire on them because thai chinese restaurants were later seen as not authentic or pure because they were mixing two different foods and that fusion is not most popular hey fusion fusion both is and is not popular Mm. it's it's a whole it's saying yeah yeah we'll get there yeah yeah so also inside the restaurants the owners would try to establish and differentiate the unique thai ethnicity through a heck of a lot of exoticism The article that I read called it a staging of authenticity. So we see through the decor, the style of the menus, and the way that the menus are like laid out with mm. like kind of like a pigeon English, sort of like like oof, spe- like Thai specialty, like that kind of thing. Yeah. And then also the staff, obviously. Oh boy. So all of this sold the restaurant and the food as an exotic and authentic culinary adventure. All culinary <laughs> things are adventures, truly. Yes, I mean, I love a culinary adventure, but That's it brings much. up a lot of problems. Yeah, so we see specifically, like, gendered consequences are huge. The female restaurant employees were often, like, co- fully commodified as part of an exotic, sensual Thai experience. 
Rika cannot say the word sensual without doing a <laughs> slight bit of gyration just so that everybody is aware. Uh, that's what's I just, here. I can't take it. I hate that word. <laughs> it's a very bad word. Like, yeah. not moist level, but Ugh. it's kind of gross. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um... So yeah, so that's Thai food. So Thai food to Americans became, yeah, so it's this sort of like exotic special. I mean, you think about the, like even Thai restaurants that you go into now, they have like the decor. It's always that specific type, like style of writing. Mm-hmm. They've got like the old like temple, like dancer headdresses. I think that's the most like, that that's really a huge one. Like pictures me. of the temples are everywhere. Totally. I was going to say Angkor Wat, but I think that's Cambodia. Oh, gosh. <laughs> it definitely is. Yep. But it's, yeah, like, that specific style. They've got, like, the dancers, and the staff are usually in sort of what would be considered to a, like, an American consumer as, like, Thai, like, garb. garb. Usually with a little midriff. I mean, ugh. Yeah, mm, you got yep. the whole look. So, yeah, so the Thai food is exotic. Um, specifically because of its spiciness, that's a huge part. Mm-hmm. We see, and so Thai food to Americans becomes synonymous with spiciness, and then by extension, eating hot food was considered a quote immutable feature of being Thai. So mild Thai is therefore considered tourist Thai, which smacks of the dreaded inauthenticity. Which, like to this day, I feel weird going into any sort of Asian restaurant and then being like, "How spicy do you want it?" and saying anything like below. Like, pretty hot. I yeah. can handle it. I know. Whatever. And then sometimes you can't. You're like, it. But we actually see, like, the Thai chefs at this time. And a lot of them were sometimes, like, I was going to say second generation. But I actually don't know if that's true. But a lot of them kind of played back into this stereotype. Yeah. By saying, it's like, oh, yeah, like, we Thai, like, we are just genetically, like, able to handle, like, more, like, hotness. Hotness. Like, spiciness. Heat. More heat. This is maybe a total sidebar, but was there a lot of, um, like, evidence of Thai restaurants being run by, like, Chinese people or people that were not actually Thai? Because I feel like we see that so often now, like, especially with sushi. Sushi is huge, but that's because of, like, Japan's, like, colonial history. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't really see any of that. And I think it's probably, especially the time period we're looking at right now, it's too early for that to be going on. Yeah, I mean, actually, maybe some of those, like, Thai-Chinese restaurants were sort of, like, maybe even, like, Chinese-owned. But then you Mm. can also get into this kind of, like, there's a lot of really different ethnicities within the blanket of Thai. Like, So a lot of the ones that were popular in this sort of first wave of, like, restaurant boom were, like, the, I guess it's the the southern Thai, so, like, like Bangkok Mm. kind of area. But then later, the northern, I think it's called Isan, Isan, I think that's I-S-A-A-N, they, like, that sort of took off. And it's, I mean, then you kind of sort of get into, like, oh, because like, it gets sort of racialized as well. Because it's, Interesting. I don't want to say peasant food, but it's not, like, There's it's like just a, a class element to it. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. So that's, I don't know. That's really cool. And it's kind of nice, I guess, that they get to a point where we can have, like, the conversation or at least have a market that supports more than one kind of Thai dish or one kind of Thai experience. Yes. I'm going to get to that much later. But it is. Like, it's it's true. Mm-hmm. And I think it speaks to how popular Thai food was. Yes. Um, Again, these white bitches cannot contain can't themselves. get enough of it. So we see... 
Um, so not only is spiciness sort of really much linked to the Thai identity at this time, but also the delicate and complex flavors of the food were seen by some Los Angeles food critics to be mirrored in the delicate and complex continents of the Thai people, which is rough. Can you imagine writing a sentence like that now? I mean, I'm sure that they still are. But people like, do, but yeah. Like, oh, it's... Can you... That's. I mean, I, I, I think... I don't know if anyone, like, fully wrote that, but it's... Yeah, you can totally see it. And it goes into... Oh, it's a lot. It's a lot. But, like I said, like with the spiciness, the chefs at this time, or the restaurateurs, kind of played into that. Like, totally. They would be, like, in interviews, would talk about Thai flavors as a successful borrowing, mixing, choosing, and discarding of neighborhood cultural food practices. So they're boasting that Thai food is unique uh, since they were the only Southeast Asian country that wasn't colonized. Which is false. Yeah, sort I mean, of. a lot. I think, like, at least they're acknowledging that it's like, we invented all of this right on our own, and it's like, there was no influence from anyone, even though it's like, but... Like, but that's, like, mm. actually impossible if you've talked to another person from a different place. Totally. And especially, like, if you think of where Southeast Asia is located, mm. it's... It's rife like, for the mixing of all. Like, yeah, like, can't help it. There's a reason that it was called Indochina. Yeah. It's right between China and India. And and the migrants, I'm doing this motion with She's my hands. She's making a lot of motions. No, and again, like, all of the trade that's like going on there, there's no way that you can't have influence from other places. Yeah, and I think it doesn't mean that it's not, like, a distinct mm. kind of flavor. I think it's just... The rejection of other, like, cultural influences, at least, like, in speaking about it, is very interesting, mm -hmm. even if it's not happening in practice. Yes. I'm actually going to talk about this in, like, one second more, but I want to just sort of jump into the ways that, so we've got this sort of boom of Thai restaurants, but then later, in sort of, like, the late 80s into the 90s, we're seeing the Thai food become kind of more Americanized. Because originally like, those first restaurants were really catering to like a very specific like elite rich. Mm -hmm. And then I think when we had sort of like more casual Thai restaurants, that's when it becomes kind of dumbed down for American palates. So the spices decreased, sweetness is increased, and certain staple ingredients that would be or considered unappealing to American consumers are eliminated. So that actually sees the loss of fish sauce or nam pla. Which is wild because... All we've done is discuss how this is so <laughs> central know, to the it's cuisine. So crazy. We fought so hard. Well, not we, because obviously not us, but people have fought so hard to bring this ingredient in. They're just like, we put it up our butts for nothing. <laughs> sure. Um, they also eliminated congealed pork blood, but I mean, fair. I would eat it. Uh, yes. All right. So food and nationalism, which mm -hmm. is kind of what we're talking about, or at least I'm talking about for this whole section and how much food is linked to a sense of nationhood. Mm -hmm. And so like, it seems kind of logical. It's like, yeah, of course we should associate a specific culinary tradition with a specific national identity, but it's actually super important to remember that both traditional scare quotes foods and nationality are like really slippery notions exactly it's not just it's hard to pin down yeah like many traditional or like regional dishes may actually have very recent or perhaps completely different ethnic origins like okay think about we're going into vietnamese so think like a banh mi mm. which is considered especially to a sort of more americanized audience as a traditional vietnamese food 
but it actually wouldn't exist without French colonialism to give them French baguettes. Which obviously not pro-colonialism, but very pro-baguettes. Pro-bon-me. Exactly. Yeah, and even like pad thai. Very. So recent. Very recent. And I think that's really interesting too, because I have been looking just for my own kind of culinary experiences to cook some very traditional dishes from different countries. And when you do a lot of the research, a lot of the things that we know about to be kind of the traditional dishes are not in fact that like traditional. We're seeing all of these things happen where there's so much change. We start with something in ancient Rome in like the 200s BCE that is blood and salt from yeah. fish. And then it's completely different after a while. And that's, I don't know, the idea, it's so common these days to look at it and just be like, that's not good. It's not like very authentic, which is exactly what we're seeing with these restaurants. But that really denies how interesting it is that these changes have happened. Totally. Yeah. And I think everything's shifting all the time. Like in, especially again, going, so yeah, so food isn't traditional, but also like nationality isn't traditional. Like no, Southeast Asia, it's a history of colonialism as we've been talking about this entire time. And, and that goes back, not even just to like European colonists, but like, like Vietnam was colonized, like occupied by China for so long. Exactly. It's, like, again, there hasn't been anything pinned down forever and ever and ever. Yeah, because it's... Everything is fake. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so, contemporary, post-revolutionary Vietnam. We see the impact of the flow of foreign culture, information, and ideology upon those quote-unquote traditional values. It's like a super debated topic in Vietnam. Hmm. So they have a what I don't know this they have what they consider to be a deep-rooted cultural tendency for self-assertion and independence that's really interesting yeah so I think and it kind of makes sense like you think as a country that has historically been continually like occupied and yet maintains its distinction I mean again I'm starting to fall into this trap of the sort of like authentic like yeah but it's true like you think what like all of these years of colonization and influence from the surrounding countries. And you still have quite a like distinct identity at the end of it. That's quite impressive and notable, I think. Yeah. And I think that that's super important for the like Vietnamese people. Yeah. Yes. Indochina, we talked about before as meaning Indochina. It's a bit of a problematic term. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we see, and that's like, for those who don't know, Indochina is what was referred like Vietnam was called Indochina. Was it really? I actually didn't know that. Well, it's actually Indochine, and that's like what the French colonists called it. Oh. And a, and Indochine, it can be used to refer to Laos and Cambodia and Vietnam, kind of like Oof. as a whole. Some real painting with a broad brush. I'm painting so much with a broad brush. Um, but yeah, so basically Vietnam is a really sort of like sensitive relationship to China. Which Don't was we all <laughs> historical longtime occupier. Much of contemporary Vietnamese culture has been impacted and influenced, if not fully like originated from these Chinese occupiers. The Vietnamese are very eager to prove that their culture is distinct. Hmm. So it's like, I don't know, maybe like Canada and the US. No, I think that that's so <laughs> it's such a good point to make though, because we're constantly trying to differentiate ourselves. And I think food is such a 
like easy but also important way to do that mm-hmm. and like I know that for us at least we take great pride in not having like that overproduced like mass sugar <laughs> salt whatever garbage the, I should, we, this, garbage. <laughs> this is a real America hate podcast as it turns out I'm very sorry we don't but like it is very like we really strive to not see ourselves that way in Canada I think yeah which leads to like completely ignoring our own horrific like colonial yeah past of mm, all of the bullshit yeah so fish sauce finally back to that oh fish sauce is one very distinct non-chinese marker even if it may have come from chinese origins but anyway fish sauce or nuok mom Finally, it, I feel like we're like a million years into this and we're finally saying like an actual authentic name. Oh, I said no. Ma, mm. I eh. did say the Thai version at some point. But anyway, mm. yes. So fish sauce is an important distinguisher of Vietnamese cuisine because like a lot of like you can go back. It's all like noodly and they're like, oh, it's Chinese. <laughs> so but even actually within Vietnam, kind of like we were talking about within like Thai cuisine, we've got the South or the North, like that sort of. Mm, tension uh, yeah so the north vietnamese culture so hanoi which mm-hmm. is in the north and is the capital it's depicted as the most authentic or pure vietnamese culture that's where uh pho, pho comes from which is obviously the most iconic dish at least to north americans definitely so that's from hanoi and the pho that's made in ho chi minh city or saigon mm-hmm. which is the south is considered to be a pale imitation and it's oh. it was all brought down by people who had migrated from Hanoi down to Saigon. It's just so interesting to see how one dish completely changes in a country even. Yeah. Like okay, empanadas in Argentina are so different if you're like in the north in the south like wherever you are in there, it's a completely different version. It's just, you know, nobody can agree on what they're doing. People can't agree. No. That is the hallmark of all of this. <laughs> That's just like Vietnam, kind of just like a whole. There's like, again, like, it was way easier to find information about, like, Thai food. I feel like, again, I think it's the Vietnam-American War. Oh, it a thousand percent is. So, okay, so, Vietnam, Vietnamese living in America. So, Southern California, and, like, specifically Orange County, is home to the largest population of Vietnamese outside of Vietnam, or at least at the time of this one article that I read. <laughs> I think it still stands again. I think it makes sense, yeah. Like, the West Coast is very Asian. Yes. As a whole. So originally, it was, of course, a refugee community. So the people came to the U.S. with, like, literally just the clothes on their back. The first wave of these refugees came in 1975 after the war. So that's a considerable year after the Thai... That is quite a bit longer. Like 25 years, kind of. At least, yeah. yeah. Yeah, around that. And then there's already, like, they've already got the fish sauce there. I mean, not theirs, but there's all these ingredients that have yes. already been brought over. That's so they don't have to struggle with that as I mean, much. there are refugees, so they have their own things going on. There was. But if, if they wanted to bring in specifically Vietnamese products, because, like, again, it is not the same cuisine. Yeah. The fish sauce is not the same. Totally. There was a trade embargo between the U.S. and vietnam until 1994 i was actually i meant to say when it ended but i could not remember for the life of me so i'm glad you forget that i was very specific i was like do not forget this that's such a long time for the marketplace to be completely devoid of like anything 
Totally. Wow. Totally. So, and it's also interesting, like, it's important to note that because they're refugees, like, only a very specific, like, it's, again, it's a super regionally divided population of migrants because Mm -hmm. it's not the North Vietnamese who are the communists who took, like, control of the country. So it's the South Vietnamese, like, that first wave of immigrants were, like, politicians, like, highly educated officials for the most part. Well, that makes sense. That's just... They were the ones who could afford to. Yeah, exactly. Um, So we're seeing, unlike the Thai immigrants who struggled to import their native ingredients, from this one article that I read, a lot of the Vietnamese immigrants were able to bring some of their important food products. I don't know how this was possible, but basically, like, there's a lot of the... Maybe this is much later. This must be later. It seems like it would have to be much later. Mm -hmm. Because when you're able to... But basically the Vietnamese community in Orange County have like gardens where they're growing like durian and dragon fruit and all of the very important herbs. It's all about them herbs. Gotta have herbs. Oh, so delicious. Mm-hmm. So 1988, the Vietnamese American community lobbied the city council of this like one town in Orange County that I don't remember the name of to officially designate this area like with like little signs as the Little Saigon Tourist District. I feel like the Vietnamese are actually very good at getting these little Saigon signs oh, up. Yes. Like that's their it's huge. their jam. Yes. In little Saigon here. I remember talking to a friend of mine, he's Chinese, and he goes, you know, it wasn't a very Vietnamese area. And then one day I looked up and there was just signs that said, this is little Saigon. Yes. And I was like, oh. Yes. And I, I couldn't find this in any of the literature, so I'm fully just surmising out of my butt. But I think it's like very much playing into like the American mindset too. Like they, it's like you're coming here. And of course, like as a diaspora, like you want to create your community and try and remind yourself of home as much as possible. Of but it's right. also like super smart marketing. Cause you're like, ah, this is what Americans know. And this is what they want. Yeah. So yeah, it was listed as a tourist site of interest in like mainstream guidebooks that's so interesting. Yeah. I think just in general, we should really just like applaud to all the marketing gurus. So much marketing. It's all marketing. Oh. Yeah. And it attracts like both Asian and non-Asian tourists and locals who want to like get an experience of like what it's like to shop. <laughs> oh God. No, it's just like, again, like from the burbs, all these like dumb, like 13 year olds who are like, I'm going to go to Chinatown now. See what that's about. Yes. And, like, also from a practical standpoint, like, if you want to shop for some cheap groceries... You're going to Chinatown. Going to, yeah, Chinatown or, like, a little Saigon Mm -hmm. or... I'm trying to think of other... Yeah, like, the Persian grocery store down my street is the best. It's so cheap and so good. There are so many Persian grocery stores. I just moved to Toronto and there's so many Persian grocery stores there. Mm. And it is a delight. Yeah, so good. Did you know that when I moved, right before I did, when I was very stressed out about it, Marika goes, they have terrible grocery stores there, (laughs) which is not a helpful comment, but I would like to let everyone know that it is not the truth. Mm -hmm. Not everywhere. Not everywhere. (laughs) Anyways. Um, so kind of contrasted to like when we were looking at Thai restaurants and how they're very clear to like, like this is Thai. Look at how exotic and like unique we are. Mm From a couple articles that I was reading in like a lot of the American cities where the Vietnamese immigrants settled, the retail shops that they owned were not outwardly visible as Vietnamese, like unless you like really knew. 
Huh. Were they still outwardly, like, Asian? So, like, this little Saigon in Orange County apparently had a lot of kind of, like, generic Asian details. Mm. Like, again, kind of that ambivalent relationship to Chinese. Or they'd just be, like, like, fully, like, modern in their, like, aesthetic. Like, there'd be, like, a Buddhist temple just in an office building. I love that. Yeah. So by contrast, in Singapore, according to this one article that I read, Vietnamese food is like super fancy. Love. And so the article that I read uses the term Indo-Chinese just so that they can like encompass Vietnamese, Laotian, Cambodian cuisines, mm-hmm. which is like fair, smart. So apparently there are a lot of like super fancy and expensive Indo-Chinese restaurants in Singapore. Why Singapore specifically? Do you know? There were, like, a lot of reasons, but mm. part of it, so, like, one of the reasons is, like, it's a really, like, cosmopolitan city. Well, that makes sense. And, like, that's what how it wants to be aligned. And this, like, we're going to get into this way of consuming ethnic foods and ethnic cuisine as, like, a kind of, like, performative act of showing your own, like, wokeness and, like, multicultural, like, like knowledge is that not so prevalent like everywhere yeah my goodness yeah so for a public who would like to see themselves as part of an elite globally oriented cosmopolitanism Mm -hmm. so it's like yeah like oh we have had like japanese all of these nights then we had french like for weeks let's try indo-chinese do you remember when sushi became popular here yeah, sushi's delicious. It is delicious, but I just mean, wasn't it interesting that, like, out of nowhere, everyone was just like, damn. Sushi. Yeah. yeah, and, like, such a mix of, like, super cheap. Totally. Mostly Korean-run sushi restaurants. Yep. And, like, really high-end. Totally. Yeah, so here in Singapore, they're totally tapping into, just like the Thai restaurants in L.A. in the 80s, this commodification of Indo-Chinese colonial chic. Colonial chic. Yeah. So they're marketing themselves as offering an edgy hybridity in contrast to the like straight Chinese or French. So here they're again, they're look at how many influences we have. Yes. And again, I think it's about like the authenticity and like the authority that you have to do so. Yeah. And their clientele is, yeah, supposed to be like a knowledgeable consumer who understands Indo-Chinese food as a matrix of influences I'm always going to use the term matrix. Matrix of influences. Of influences. I love that. So yeah. So why does this exist in Singapore? We kind of like talked in some of it, but unlike in the States where there is kind of more of a fraught past with Vietnam. Mm. So it would be kind of like, I don't know if it would be weird, but I guess it's a harder market for like a really fancy Vietnamese restaurant. And again, maybe that's, I was actually going to say, do you know if we have any fancy Vietnamese restaurants around? Like Ann and Chi? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's right. That's like kind I of haven't been actually. <gasps> so good. So, but by contrast, in Singapore, Vietnamese and Lao and Cambodian ethnicity doesn't seem to have like a visible referent other than like these really like exoticized restaurants. Mm-hmm. So, like, it, they wouldn't have a high end Filipino restaurant because the Filipina population in Singapore is like really highly associated with domestic work and like maids Interesting. and like really negative. And then Thai cuisine wouldn't do well either because they would associate it with like these Thai laborers who are considered like drunk and belligerent, which I, it's not stereotypes, true, but stereotypes, but yeah. So interesting. To- yes. That's so fascinating because I feel like here it's so much easier to like think of like high end Thai food, just like the different 
like it's fraught with all the history. Yeah, I like say. you think about like a Vietnamese restaurant in North America, and it's usually like a little like hole in the wall, which totally. is exactly how they are in Vietnam. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Whew. This is a way huger topic than it's I even thought it was going to be. Very massive. So we're going to transition into a section that I'm calling Oriental Cookery, aka white people co-opting Asian food. But first, let's like kind of keep talking about ethnic cuisine sort of as a mm-hmm. object. So like it's changed a lot. Completely. So ethnic foods, especially Asian foods, like we're thinking like Chinese, mm-hmm. uh, sort of like the a priori, used to be associated with student life and dining out cheaply. Like, it's just, like, cheap noodles. You're just, like, eating. Which is even how a lot of... It's still sort of like that. Totally. But I think recently it has become, as we were talking about before, a marker of one's cosmopolitan experience. Totally. There's something very, like... Like, it, it really does pick up on that. Like, when you see in shows, like, people getting takeout in those little like Chinese boxes yes. like, those are such an aesthetic choice yes and like just the idea that you can like you like the idea that you have the ability to use chopsticks like that is such a marker of that yes mm. um it. yeah so but like with that mm. comes this kind of like weird primacy of like a culturally distinct cuisine so it's like the idea that, like, the more regional and specific, the better it is, like, to the non-predominant culture view. So, like, in this instance, white people. Do you mean, like, um, like, a difference, like, okay, now we're looking at, like, South Vietnamese cuisine? Yeah, so, okay. like, exactly yeah, what we are talking about earlier. Totally. So, it's, like, oh, like, it's not enough to say that you, like... I don't like noodles or even like, like it's more cool to say that you like something like niche, like Laotian food rather than just like Thai. Or you don't just say, I like Thai. I like Isan Thai. Exactly. Or like if you can pick up on a very specific dish with like the actual like indigenous name. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And then it goes back to the whole conversations about like authenticity Mm. and to get into like, Oh, like what is the most pure and authentic like ethnic food? (laughs) Like, I mean, we've kind of discussed it, but it's just really interesting how like concerned we all are about that. And like, it's so hard to to bring, like to remove yourself from that question kind of. Yeah. Because logically I can look at it and say, oh, nothing is authentic. Everything is a total collaboration and a, like a hodgepodge mm-hmm. of other things. And that's really interesting and neat on its own. But there is still a small part of me that's like, no, I want to eat like the most authentic thing that I've ever eaten. I mean, that's literally us talking about Thai versus Vietnamese fish sauce and liking the Vietnamese one from Be- the yeah from the culturally oh. distinct like location. We are so problematic. But I mean, if it tastes better, like... Mm. But we didn't do a taste test. That's true. Also, you were unwilling. Uh, it's not... It's... It's no, too it's fishy! That's fair. You shouldn't have to. Uh, Alright. Let's talk... I can't drink a whole bunch of fish sauce by fish. myself. Okay. Let's talk about white people. Because they do not get enough air time. Not enough air time. Alright, so an interest in Asian food practices occurred simultaneously with the formation of suburban whiteness. Love it. After World War II. So that's when we've got people living in 
suburbs with 2.5 kids and the mom stays home and that picket fence and a dog. Yes. So specifically like white American housewives kind of like spearheaded this whole idea of oriental cooking. I can't, that's when you say that, are they cooking this at home? Yeah. Okay. So there's a whole thing. So white American housewives had basically like a huge fascination with Asian Pacific cuisine that basically bolstered the U.S. empire, going back to the by, quote, adapting local food cultures and systems to the tastes and appetite of U.S. consumers. So white American women in the post-World War II America traveled abroad to Asia, usually as part of the Peace Corps or because uh, their husbands or parents were involved with the U.S. military. Not to shit on the Peace Corps, but ugh. I know. Sorry, continue. So they gained an appreciation for, quote, oriental epicurean delights and learned how to cook them from hired cooks and servants. I mean, is that not the goddamn same thing that's happening now, though? Like, my mother, and like myself as well, I will own this, but like, every time she goes somewhere on vacation, she's like, we have to take a cooking Cooking class class with the locals. Yes. Which, like, we did. I did in Vietnam. Really loved it. Fabulous. But also, white people. I roll. So, okay, yes, true, and that's, like, a whole, like, tourist thing there. But, like, in this instance, it's got super specific imperialist, like, undertones because Mm. it's literally, like, super rich white people going there and having this fantastical experience of a Southeast Asian country where they're literally, like, treated like royalty. You get, like, like, driven around in limos. You've got servants. You've got cooks. You're going to fancy dinner parties. Like, people are fully entertaining you. So by bringing home these like recipes and like the cooking techniques that they've learned, it's bringing up fond memories of like basically being catered to. That's really heady. Yeah. A lot of these women came back and wrote quote oriental cookbooks to teach American housewives all about the exciting new foods of the far East. Dude, dude, the titles of these books. That's okay. Let's hear it. Okay. Siamese cookery. The original Thai cookbook. Whoever published that should be shot on sight. Oh my goodness. Okay. Far Eastern Epicure and Adventures in Oriental Cooking. I can't tell which of one is the worst. It feels so bad. Oh yeah. my goodness. So with the help of these cookbooks in the late 50s and 60s, hosting oriental dinner parties became a way for a white American middle class housewives to elevate their social and cultural status. So they're going back. They're being like, look at how multicultural. Look at how cosmopolitan I am. I know how to cook a stir fry. The worst part about this is that we would 100% be these bitches. Yes. We totally. Are these bitches. We are. I'm sorry. But uh, we're more self-aware. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. In all these cookbooks, there's an emphasis on how different the cuisine is from Western food. And readers are often invited to dress up in in the exotic fashions of Asia for their parties and decorate according to the theme. I love it. Bitches love a theme. So, but of course, like the dishes in these cookbooks still had to appeal to American sensibilities. So it's like, yeah, you want an exoticism, but you want it. In a it way has that's to familiar. Sell. Yeah. So fusion. Oof. So not only does something does it make something like kimchi more palatable by mixing it with cream cheese and turning it into a dip. Ah! But fusion is the perfect example of the global discourse of global cultural exchange. 
that's going on at this time. Yeah. It's like, it's a perfect metaphor. Yeah, it is. Mm. So as well as the cookbooks, many women also took to leading oriental cooking classes. <gasps> and yes, I keep using the word oriental because it was in the 60s and that's what they called it. I'm aware it is bad. But yeah, classes for white women by white women. Oh my. Yeah. So in cookbooks and in these classes, it's like an example of white Americans acting as an authority on Asians. They're just living out some little fantasy world, hey? Yeah. It's like, let me teach you how it's done. Oh, Oh, bad. So that was in like the 50s and 60s, like into the 70s. Mm -hmm. Now let's talk about fish sauce in the white marketplace and specifically like American brands of like fish sauce and then in general like Thai products because there's not as many like American versions of Vietnamese again probably going back to nom nom (laughs) um okay my question is on that is it are we discussing like Americans have started producing fish sauce on their own or is it the importation and then like labeling oh I'm actually talking like specifically like brands okay yeah so like full like market capitalist commodification brand names for it it's actually like an extension of like this the oriental cooking thing oh boy so so a taste of thai is like a that's such a massive brand is a huge brand their slogan is a taste of thai is truly real thai real easy which a who that's came verbose. up with that it's not does verbose really well. is the exact word for it so and I found this on their website. It was started by Frank Landry, a man from... A very S- tiny... <laughs> from San Francisco in the 70s, who, upon eating Thai food for the first time, just, like, assumed he could make it himself, I guess. That's, like, every asshole with modern art. Yeah. Turned out he couldn't. Sure so he at couldn't. least he, like, knew that. Apparently, like, through the website, it's like, he had a dinner party for his friends. And they're like, ugh. So then he went to... <laughs> So then he went to an Asian market, probably Bangkok market, yeah. although that's LA, he's in San Francisco. Anyway, went to an Asian market where he found, quote, all sorts of great products in bulk or packaged in paper bags, upon which were en- were innumerable strange symbols that meant nothing to him. That's rude. <laughs> okay. So he had the bright idea to develop a line of products in plain old American English so white people everywhere could make Thai food at home from a package. Doing God's work, this man was. There's also Thai Kitchen. Yeah. That's like a big one. It's owned by McCormick. Shut the fuck up. Yeah, I was a little bit sad. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. You. It's just, I think the thing that makes us so sad about that is just we, one, we have our intense need for authenticity in ourselves. Uh But also, like, you want to think that people are profiting off of their own culture, which they're not. Yeah. Anywho. Yeah. I mean, I guess we could go down the whole, like, wormhole of talking about just, like, the Asian aisle in grocery stores. Oh, boy. And how, like, I feel like it usually also has British food, but maybe that's just... That's, like, the... Eth- not... Is it... It's not the Asian aisle. It's the ethnic aisle, then, too. Or what I think I see most often mm. is Asian next to, like, Mexican. Yeah. Mexican Asian aisle. Which, why is there and not then also like, there's, of like, those two But, like, things. Asian is, like, yeah, like, Thai, Vietnamese, like, Indian. Like, all of it's, which... Ooh. I mean, I get it. Like, you need to have... Uh, you need a uh, place for things. Like, it's not the store's fault that they can't give everyone an aisle. But just, but also like, rude. 
Oh, so let's Bon Appetit. My bon Appetit. Uh, I'm sure we're going to get so much hate for my love of Bon Appetit, but whatever. Why would anyone hate Bon Appetit? I don't know. There's there's like a, again, like a normative white like cultural. Hey, everyone. Uh, this podcast was recorded about two weeks before the Bon Appetit scandal involving Adam Rapoport using blackface, which is obviously not condoned by this podcast or by me or Emily personally. So just wanted to let you know that I no longer subscribe and uh, yeah, that's shitty of them and I don't like it. So sorry. So they have like did like a ranking article of like the best fish sauce and Red Boat Mm -hmm. is the brand that they recommend the most. It is made in Vietnam it's a Vietnamese brand, so yay. But it, like, clearly caters to Western consumers. It's, like, the label is English. It's got, like, a snappy, like, pared-down, like, label. It's not just because... Is, like, do they sell it in Vietnam as well? That I don't know. I because, can only find it on Amazon. Because I think a part of that would have to do with, like... Like, wine is labeled differently for every country totally. it goes out to. Mm-hmm. So it's just... That's just smart marketing. Yeah, but it's just, like, it's just ugh, so obvious. Because yeah. you can get, like, a lot of other fish sauces, like, from Vietnam, and it's just, like, full, like, only Vietnamese on the label, like, maybe, like, one line where it's, like, fish sauce. Yeah, fair. Which is cool. There's vegetarian fish sauce. Which is? Um, well, usually made from fermented soybeans and, like, lots of salts. My, how is it different from soy sauce, then? I don't know. Hmm. Like, it's not. <laughs> So, like, Vietnam has a large Buddhist population, so that's why there's, like, so much vegetarian or, like, vegan food available in Vietnam, which is great. It's, again, like, the ability to access the food that you can safely eat when you're on vacation is such a, like, nice thing to have. It was a total dream. And, like, I feel so lucky that I eat literally everything. (laughs) Like, God bless my uncultured constitution. (laughs) So, yeah. But I, I, like, tried to look for in grocery stores this week for the vegetarian fish sauce. Couldn't find any. There was, when I was in Vietnam, there was one that I think was made from pineapple. That sounds amazing. So cool. I don't know how, like, fermented pineapple. I would eat that for days. Yes. But I can't find it anywhere. You looked online, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a shame. Briefly. I could do some digging. Yeah. So, uh, fish sauce. Whew. So I think what, again, like, this is really drawn back to, like, the general, like, modus operandi of this podcast is that when you look at a food, you are seeing so much more than just the dish itself. And so much, like, it can change so much over time and place. Yeah. I, I it's crazy. And it's I'm super so, cool. It's so cool, guys. Um, yeah. Thanks so much for listening. And uh, we'll see you soon. Yeah. Or not see you. Bye-bye. You'll hear us soon. (laughs) Goodbye. (laughs) Goodbye.